Welcome to episode number 58 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. IRS Section 1031 is one of the most powerful exceptions in the IRS tax code for landowners. This exception allows the postponement of tax on the gains created from the proceeds of land or investment property sales if the proceeds are invested in a similar land or investment property. David Gorenberg is the Director of Education for Accruit, a 1031 exchange intermediary. David has made a career out of building 1031 exchange programs and providing 1031 education for more than 30 years, which makes him one of the leading experts on 1031 exchanges in the United States. Today, we talk with David in depth about 1031 exchanges, when to use them, when not to, the politics around 1031 exchanges, and how they can benefit you or other landowners. Disclaimer, this is one of our longer episodes. I completely lost track of time because this is absolutely fascinating information and this runs for over an hour. Do not let that distract you though. This episode is full of extremely valuable information for landowners. Do not miss this. Now sit back and enjoy. I am sitting here with David Gorenberg. David, you are with Accruit, who is a 1031 intermediary. It's somebody that we work with uh, with our with our new launch of Land 1031, where we specialize in 1031 exchanges and we help facilitate those. And you are the director of education with Accruit. Um, obviously, a pretty good source to talk to on the subject matter. So, David, tell me how you got into Accruit in the first place, sort of your background. What was your journey to get here? Wonderful. Well, Mac, first, thank you for having me here today. Uh, how I, how did I get to accrue it? Well, I've known the CEO for probably oh, almost 20 years. And immediately prior to accrue it, I was working at a bank where they had recruited me to build a 1031 exchange service inside the bank. And uh, I woke up one day and went to work. And, and the next thing I knew, I was on a call where they were telling me that because of COVID, they were shutting down the product. So um, after I recovered from that gut punch, I, I literally reached out to the CEO at Accrue and said, "As a, I don't know what your thoughts are, but if you'd like to expand to the East Coast, I'm available. It was the shortest dating relationship I've ever had, the quickest courtship I've ever had. Uh, we had an agreement in principle in a matter of minutes and, and paperwork was signed by the end of the week. So here I am three years later. So you've built programs for 1031s. You now run education for uh, a company that specializes in 1031s. How far back does your background go in 1031 exchanges? Well, I prior to being a full-time intermediary, I was a practicing attorney. And in 1992, while, while practicing as an attorney, I represented a client who was doing a 1031 exchange with investment property. So we can go all the way back to 1992 with my first 1031 exchange. So with 30 years plus experience, I'm guessing you know a thing or two on the subject? I, I, I will acknowledge that I know a thing or two, but I will also acknowledge that there are a few things I don't know 
And every once in a while, I do have to reach out to others for, for assistance. You know, that's, I take that as a sign of wisdom when people can actually admit what they don't know. Cause it's, it's one of those, <laughs> I've had to learn it the hard way. <laughs> I, I have always prided myself on knowing what I don't know. And so that's definition of wisdom, Socrates, right? Definition of wisdom. Um, you know, I'll take your word for it. I, I just, I, the, so the other side of that is, um, I think this quote comes from uh, Abraham Lincoln, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. One of my so, favorites. Yeah. When I'm not sure, I try to remain silent so that I can go research it and then speak later. I can appreciate that. Well, so, so let's jump in, um, you know, and, th and this is, a lot of landowners are very familiar with 1031 exchanges because people that work in agriculture will have to do one at some point a lot of the time. Um, but I like to approach things from a 101 level for those that have never experienced it and those that don't know the benefit. Um, so 101 level, what is a 1031? So to boil it down to its simplest, let's, let's use this sentence. We work with investors who play Monopoly with real property and real money. And we help them avoid paying capital gains tax when they sell Pennsylvania Avenue to buy Boardwalk. That's it. And and so when, when you say avoid on the sale, are we avoiding taxes period? Or are we, are we kicking it down the road? Well, it starts with the idea that you're kicking it down the road, okay? And, and we'll talk about what those taxes are in a minute. It starts with the idea that you're kicking it down the road. And eventually, if you ultimately sell the last property in the chain, you do need to recognize all of those taxes that you had been kicking down the road, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because I think we can all understand the time value of, of a dollar. And I'd rather pay you $100 in 10 years than pay you $100 today. I still had the use of that $100 for those 10 years. And the IRS doesn't charge interest on that $100 while you keep kicking the can down the road. Now, it can become a tax-free exchange if the investor is willing to die before selling properties, because then their heirs will inherit those properties at the fair market value as of the date of grandpa's death, they get a step up in basis, and all of those taxes that we had been kicking down the road get kicked into the gutter instead. Got you. So it defers the capital gains and then upon death. So if you're just willing to die, then you can avoid the t death and taxes. Yeah. Yeah. And sadly, a lot of my clients don't like admitting that they have to die as part of their tax planning. I could really see that as a drawback. Yeah. <laughs> but, and it's and it's more than just capital gain. Now, if we're talking about ag land, it really is capital gain. But if if the land has any improvements on it whatsoever, then there's also depreciation recapture. So okay. if we have center pivot irrigation systems, if we have fencing, if we have pole barns, um, if we have solar collectors, any improvements that we've put on the property would have accumulated depreciation during the time we owned the property. So that tax gotcha. also gets deferred. 
does do do the improvements have to take place before the 1031 exchange for those to be viable for depreciation or are those things that can be added and then depreciated after addition well so there's really two answers to that on the property that we are selling those improvements would have needed to have been in place okay for a period of time and most of those improvements will depreciate over five or seven years. But when we buy the replacement property, we can now put new improvements on those. Right? Okay, so if, got you. if I'm buy, if I'm selling to you a thousand acres of raw land in Idaho, so I can buy a different thousand acres of raw land in Kentucky, maybe when I get to Kentucky, I want to change the use of my land. Maybe instead of it just being raw pasture land, uh, I I want to erect a couple of buildings. I want to start farming it. I want to, who knows what crop grows, somebody knows what crop grows best in Kentucky. I don't, uh, but if I want to start growing that crop, I'm gonna need to start putting up some fences to keep the critters out, some irrigation to make sure that the, plot, the crop grows and such. Okay, so you also have the benefit of depreciation to factor in there when you're working with the taxation. Correct. So when we're talking 1031s, what can be exchanged in a 1031 exchange? What for what? Real estate for real estate. Okay. Any asset class of real estate on the outbound side, any asset class of real estate on the inbound side, there are really only two caveats to that. Number one, your personal residence and your second home don't count. It must truly be business or investment property. Okay. So it could be an Airbnb, it could be a farm, it could be an office building, whatever. When you buy, same thing, um, no business or uh, no personal use property, no second home. But if we sold domestic real estate, we need to buy domestic real estate. So you can't sell in, in Idaho and buy in India. Foreign real estate is like kind to foreign real estate. Domestic real estate is like kind to domestic real estate. So has to be income producing, has to be in the country. It doesn't necessarily have to be income producing. Okay. And, and I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I could have bought 500 acres to let my cattle graze. So could you argue that it's income producing because my cattle are grazing there? Yeah, I guess you could. But what if I bought, let's take a smaller piece of property. Let's say I, well, I'll give you an example. There's a spot not far down the road from where I'm sitting. Uh, it's about an eight or nine acres uh, lot. And when I was in law school, it was for sale. And I wanted to buy it. Problem was I was in law school and I didn't have two extra nickels. So there was no way I was buying that eight or nine acres. Well, whoever bought it sat on it for about 10 or 12 years. And now there's a gas station and convenience store on that property. So somebody sat on that property for 10 or 12 years paying property taxes on truly raw land. I mean, there was nothing happening with it. So that was the opposite of income producing. They had property taxes and probably some insurance. And had so so in that situation where they bought raw land, this is and this is where I get to get curious and just pick your brain. Uh so on that situation where they had raw land, had they not put businesses on there, whether I don't know whether they did it through a lease or whether they sold it to the to the um, to the businesses. But had they not put businesses on that land, would it still qualify for a 1031 exchange if it was still just raw land? Yeah. And 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 here's a simple 
explanation why. When they bought it, I'm going to put pretend numbers on it. When they bought it for a million dollars and then held it for 12 years, during those 10 or 12 years that they held it, the community around grew. So now this land that was at an intersection that was truly in the middle of nowhere. Like if I drove through that intersection when I first got my driver's license, I would have believed I was lost because it was truly the middle of nowhere. But now there are housing developments within less than a mile and professional buildings. So in that intervening 10 or 12 years that they owned the property, the value skyrocketed. So, so if they bought it for a million and now it's worth two million. Yeah. Okay. So so as long as you can qualify it as an investment that's not your first or second home, that's really it. Yep, pretty much. Okay. That 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 answers 99% of the question. Okay. That's I I I I I'd heard the word income producing in the past. And and again, that's because we're not talking to experts like you. We're just kind of like talking in between. And so it's kind of like, I just assumed they had to generate revenue. And so, no, it's, it's good to know this. Well, the statute says that the property was held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment. So let's give another example. Let's say you have a construction company and that's where you park your dump trucks and bulldozers at the end of every shift. It's not producing income. It's where you're parking your machinery. Right. Right. But it's clear that there's a business use there. Right. So when at the end of the year, how do you prove that something was held for productive use or in a trade for productive use in a trade or for business or for investment? Well, one way is to ask, was it, was it income producing? Yeah. Um, now that said, Sometimes taxpayers come to us and they ask if the property qualifies. And one of the things we will ask them is, how was the property treated on your income tax return? Did you reflect ownership of this property on Schedule E? Well, Schedule E specifically deals with income from real estate or income and expenses. So if I owned raw land and I wasn't renting it out, but I had to pay property taxes and insurance, then I have expenses. Got you. Okay. So when it comes down to it, um, you, there's there's I, the the two get floated together all the time as DSTs and 1031s. And I was wondering if you could just highlight the differences between those and sort of like how they're used. Well, it's not so much that they are alike or different. They're they're two different tools in your investment arsenal. So you can take your next paycheck and go out and buy an interest in a Delaware statutory trust. That's what a DST is. DST is short for Delaware statutory trust. And, and what that is, what a Delaware statutory trust is, it's kind of like a REIT, except that each specific trust was formed or is formed to acquire a specific parcel of real estate or portfolio of real estate. And at the end of the investment cycle of three or five or seven years, whatever it might be, that property is sold, the trust winds down, and everything gets distributed out to the investors who either do a new 1031 exchange or take their cash and go home. Delaware Statutory Trust is often mentioned in the same paragraph as 1031 exchange because it is a, uh, a tool that you can use to reinvest into 
if you no longer want to manage management intensive real estate. So if I'm currently the owner of a multi-unit apartment building and every day I'm getting a different phone call from a different tenant about something that's broken, um, that becomes a nuisance, right? The toilets, the tenants, the trash, the taxes, all of it becomes a nuisance. And even if I have a, a superintendent living there or a property manager living there, they're handling the headache, but every time something has to get fixed, that's coming out of my bottom line, right? So maybe I'm tired of all those phone calls and I sell my apartment building and now I can buy into a Delaware statutory trust where I will never again receive one of those phone calls. So it takes it to, to a situation where you are not actively managing, but you're still invested. Correct. Got gotcha. you. Okay. And it's, it's, I just want, yeah, it's one of those things like you always hear them mentioned side by side, or at least in, in our industry, they, they get mentioned side by side a lot. So I wanted to clarify, like, they are not the same thing. <laughs> they are not the same thing. And I've seen them used. There's typically a couple of different groups of people who really like the Delaware statutory trusts. The first group is the folks who have been invested in real estate for many years. They're now older. They're contemplating retirement. And they want to be able to relax and enjoy the world and, and maybe get in an RV and tour the country or something like that. So they don't want the management headache, but they also want the income. And um, so disposing of what they own to buy into one or more Delaware statutory trusts helps them accomplish that task. The other group of people who often consider a Delaware statutory trust is someone who, I'm going to put pretend numbers on this transaction, someone sells a million dollar piece of property, they find another property that they really like, but it's only $750. And if they don't reinvest the other $250, they are going to have to pay tax. So they'll buy into a Delaware statutory trust to fill in that gap. Because with the Delaware, the, the Delaware statutory trust, you can is it the fact that you can you can buy it into the remainder of what's left over into another piece of real estate to you capitalized on all of it and Correct. that's how it functions kind of like a REIT portfolio does it does it have some of the liquidity issues that REITs do well so the major difference between a REIT and a Delaware statutory trust is that a REIT exists sort of in perpetuity it that's will sell I mean, one piece of real estate buy another piece of real estate and continue that cycle. Um, REITs, <clears throat> if you own an interest in a REIT or interests in a REIT, most of them are publicly traded and you can sell out anytime just as if you own stock in Motorola or IBM. In a Delaware statutory trust, if you talk to the sponsors, they will tell you that they're a little bit less liquid because when you bought it, you bought on essentially for a five or seven year tour. Uh, and if you want to get out early, you're going to have to find a buyer because they don't have one for you. Now, that all said, the advisors with whom I work have pretty much universally told me that they can always find somebody who's willing to buy what you have, even if it's not yet gone full cycle. Gotcha. So if you have some life-altering event and you need to cash out, somebody can help you out. That's really useful. Now, I appreciate you humoring me. I know we've deviated way off the route of 1031s, but these all kind of tie into each other as real estate investment mechanisms. It is good to just jump into because REITs are similar to DSTs and DSTs get combined with 1031s all the time. Yes. So 
when it comes down to it, what situations are sort of ideal for a 1031 exchange? And actually, before we jump in there, I want to double back. When we're saying REITs, it's a, we're talking real estate investment trusts, just for anybody that doesn't know the acronym. And it's a, just an investment mechanism. You probably heard from them from different financial advisors if you talk to them, but that's what we're discussing here. Um, right. but so, so jumping back in, uh, situations that are ideal for 1031 exchange. And I have a feeling this is a fairly broad question, but I want to make sure that I ask it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. So the sort of naive answer for why would somebody do a 1031 exchange is because they want to avoid paying the capital gains tax. But you can also avoid paying the capital gains tax if you just don't sell the property, right? <laughs> so what would motivate somebody to sell property and then structure that transaction as part of a 1031 exchange. Well, there are several things that come immediately to mind. Maybe somebody wants to change asset classes. They want to get out of raw land. They want to get into multifamily or they want to get out of multifamily and they want to get into commercial, those kinds of things. Absolutely an ideal time to consider 1031 exchange. Maybe they're relocating their life because they're tired of the winters in Idaho. Um, I've not spent a winter in Idaho. I can imagine that it's probably a little colder there than it is in New Mexico. We get some we get some feet of snow. <laughs> yes. And, and and I know folks in your general neighborhood and they have explained that to me. And I have friends in Dillon, Montana, and they explain the same thing to me. Um, so, you know, if if you're tired of the Montana or the Idaho winters and you're you're willing to suffer with the New Mexico summers, which is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. Um, then maybe you're going to want to, if you're going to want to move your family, then you'll probably want to move your investments with you. Right? So there's another reason, somebody who is relocating. Um, sometimes the relocation isn't quite as drastic. Maybe um, the the uh, economic climate is a little stronger in one county versus another county, and you're really only moving your properties 10 or 20 miles. And depending on the counties, that could be a substantial change to your investment portfolio. <clears throat> um, the other thing that, that sort of gets overlooked, I try to harp on it a lot, especially with with folks who are um, either already have children or already have grandchildren, is what are you going to do when you pass? Who gets this property when you die? I had a client a bunch of years ago who owned a shopping center. And the way his will was written, the shopping center was going to pass to four grandchildren. Well, one shopping center plus four grandchildren equals family squabble. So what grandpa did was he sold the shopping center and bought four identical corner unit condos, paid literally to the penny the same thing for each of those four condos. And those condos are within walking distance of a major division one university. So he effectively bought student housing. And the grad students at that university love those condos because, again, walking distance to the main gate, parking, laundry facilities, blah, 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 blah. 
So to use 1031 exchange as an estate planning tool is also um, a valuable, valuable way to use it. Is that something that can pre so so as part of the the estate planning, you can set it up to where it will trigger upon death. Is that what it was set up as, or did he make the, or did he make the exchanges before death? Well, he made no. He made these exchanges before death while he okay, was, so this was this alive. active planning. This isn't something that triggered. As no, 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 no. That wouldn't that wouldn't be part of a ten thirty one exchange because okay. if Grandpa had in fact died, then the estate could have sold. The property, the, the the shopping center outright upon his death. Okay. And distributed the cash. But what grandpa wanted was for the grandchildren to have an asset that could help them with the rest of their lives rather than simply having cash. And then by the nature of that, the deferred taxes don't catch up to the people who've inherited it. Uh in fact, the deferred taxes go away. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And at that moment, my name changes from David Gorenberg to David Copperfield. Gotcha. Right? Because those taxes disappear. <laughs> I got you now. Okay. That, that this is making a lot more sense as, as a tool in this regard. Cause I haven't, I haven't jumped into the estate side of that. So this is, this is very good. Um, so we're, we've kind of talked about life situations and you brought up one where if somebody's moving, would it be the same way? And let me, let me, see if I have the structure right. Um, if you're thinking like farms and ranches where sometimes you have the residents on the ranch, is is that where it's advised to like split up the residential part of the property, separate out the business part of the property and then run a 10 ex 1031 exchange off of that? Is that, so you, you subdivide the property away from the residential, keep the business part and then run the 1031 exchange strictly off the business section it incur the capital gains off the residential sale. Is that kind of, and, and what I'm so, thinking about is like, if you moved the family ranch and say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we get those transactions all the time. Um, I've had, you, you may not think of it this way, but New Jersey has plenty of farmlands. That's why we're called the garden state. Um, so does Pennsylvania. These are the towns that the States in my backyard. Um, I, I had a transaction just last year and whether you should subdivide it apart, or not is is kind of a case specific analysis. Okay. What's this family like? What's the tax situation in their state and such? But I had a transaction just last year where the family had a fifty acre farm. It was mostly um, there was some grazing land, and they they rented out stalls in the barn for for local folks to ride horses and such. And uh, they may have had some chickens and other little stuff, but. 50 acres and the house that they lived in was on one acre and there was a sort of circular driveway around the house so from from an aerial view if you send a drone up you could say yep there's the house and there's the other 49 acres and there was no subdivision per se however their accountant had been allocating a portion of the property taxes to the farm and another portion to the homestead so when it came to, and, and if you think about it, that made perfect sense. But when it came time to do the 1031 exchange, uh, they actually came in with a set of appraisals. They had a local residential real estate professional do a market analysis on just the house and its one acre. 
So what would a house in this community on one acre with these amenities sell for? And then they had a land expert come in and say, okay, well, what would 49 acres with fences and barns and troughs and whatever all else stuff is there, what would that sell for? And conveniently, those two numbers didn't overlap a lot. So it made it very easy for the CPA to say, okay, when we sell the property, this portion is allocated to the house, this portion is allocated to the farm. Okay. And and since I feel like the conversation or what you're saying kind of lends to this, what are the logistics that go behind a 1031 sale? They 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 do get fairly complicated as far as like if if I'm Bob down the street and I've decided that I'm going to do a 1031 exchange, I'm introducing to my life a bunch of deadlines that I have to meet or else I've got a busted deal. And so, so how does that work? Yeah. So, so let's first talk about paperwork at, at the sale of the one property and the purchase of the next property, 99% of what you see is going to be exactly the same as if there was no 1031 exchange, there will really be a total of five additional documents. There's an exchange agreement between the qualified intermediary, in this case, land 1031, and, and the taxpayer. There's going to be an assignment from the taxpayer to land 1031, and that's what's going to direct the title company, the escrow company, to send the cash proceeds to land 1031 rather than Bob the farmer. And then there's also going to be a notice to the buyer that, hey, by the way, I'm doing a 1031 exchange. But at the closing table, the only real difference anybody will notice is that Bob isn't walking out of there with a check in his hand. That money got wired to land 1031. And then at the purchase, it's going to be very much the same. There's going to be another assignment to land 1031 and then a notice to the seller. And instead of a check coming from Bob, there's going to be a wire coming in from land 1031. So that all looks very much the same as if there were no 1031 exchange involved. But yes, the mechanics can be scary if you try to overthink it. And I, I try to impress upon my taxpayers all the time, don't overthink it. When we go to closing today, our taxpayer has 45 days after today to identify a short list of potential replacement properties. Now, What's candidly, does that have to have a minimum amount or just one? Well, there's no minimum amount. Well, the minimum amount would be one. Okay. Um, but when I get a chance to work with a real estate professional early, I encourage them to tell the taxpayer the day that you signed the listing agreement is the day you should start looking for your new property. Because if you do that, you could very well set yourself up such that you sell your old property on Monday and you buy your new property on Friday and there's no stress, no headache, no must, no fuss. It's the taxpayers who wait until they got to closing before they start looking. Because now you those are the ones who get You want 45 days comes real fast. Right? 45 and, days ago was the middle of June. Do you have any idea what you were doing in the middle of June? I sure as heck don't. I don't know. I sneeze nowadays and two months goes by. <laughs> I'm sorry. 45 days ago was the middle of July. Yeah, yeah. So what happens if you miss that deadline? Well, if the taxpayer does not submit a list of identified potential properties by midnight on the 45th day, 
Then their 1031 exchange is over. They get their money back minus the fees that they paid. There's no penalties. There's no interest. They have to pay the tax come April. Right. So you do have the kit at that point, you incur capital gains on the sale of your land. Correct. And then so 45 days to identify the property, how many days to close? A total of 180 days or the due date of your tax return, whichever comes sooner. So it could be quicker than 180 days if you haven't spaced it. Correct. Correct. Okay. If we're if we're selling our relinquished property on November 1st, our 180-day deadline is the first week of May, but your taxes were due April 15th. So you either have to file for an extension on your tax return to get the full 180 days, or you have to complete your 1031 exchange before April 15th. And if you do your, if you sell your relinquished property the week between Christmas and New Year's, you've even hamstrung yourself further because you still have to get it done by April 15th or file for an extension to get your full 180 days. You can file for an extension on your tax return, but not on your 1031 exchange. Okay. I was going to say, because then you got to be moving. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's why um, I've had clients over the years who will not go to closing on their relinquished property until their replacement property is through due diligence. They don't want to leave where they are until they can absolutely be certain they're going to get to where they want to go. I think that's a little over-conservative. I like the idea of start looking the day that you start, that you list the current property for sale. Yeah, I think that's pretty sage advice in in those circumstances too, because you look at right now with, we're in an environment with limited inventory, finding that replacement property could be kind of a challenge right now. Well, so here's here's the other thing. Let's let's get rid of that problem altogether. What if the taxpayer instead decides to buy their new property before they sell their old property? You can do that. It's called a reverse exchange. Okay. It has to be structured properly. You still have to get land 1031 involved in the conversation before the first closing. Because once a closing has happened, it's baked and it's done, we can't fix it. But if if you find yourself, you're marketing your current property, you're, you've got a good real estate broker working on it, uh, you think you've got a fair price on it, you found something that you really like, and that seller will give you a really good price, but you have to close in 30 days. Well, that's awesome. Except my current property isn't even under contract yet. Don't worry about it. Buy the new property take up to 180 days to sell the old one. But then then, then you do have the time pressure of like, you better price that sale, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. So let's talk a few more logistics in there that somebody might run into. Uh, replacement property is identified and there's nothing on the, on the notes. It's over or under by, let's say, you know, $50,000, maybe $100,000. There's a split. It's There's not a direct corollary to the one that you're selling. How does that get managed? Well, if we are buying property that is under by about $50,000, we have two choices. One is we pay tax on the 50. Okay. That's a... Right. It doesn't kill your 1031 exchange. It just means you're naked on that 50 depending on your tax bracket and where you are in the country, you'll lose 20 or 30% or so 
of that 50 to taxes between the state and the feds. Um, but that's okay because you had $50,000, you lose 30, you only, you know, 30%. They take 15, you get the other 35. The other option, depending on what it is that you're buying, is to make improvements to that new property using 1031 exchange money. And if we can make those improvements within that full 180-day window, we don't get a new 180 days, right? So we we sell property number one for a million dollars on day zero. We identify the new property, we buy the new property on day 60, and that property is only $900,000. Well, we still have 120 days left to spend that additional $100,000. And if I had identified the property and the improvements during the 45-day identification period, then that works. So, so you we identify, I'm buying Johnson's farm, yeah. and I'm making these improvements. New barn, new gravel road from the street to the barn, whatever all else it happens to be. So I get to run a shameless plug now here and I'm not afraid to do it. Uh, that That is where, so there's a lot of things to balance in, in these transactions and there's a lot of options on the table. That's why going it alone can be kind of spooky for everyday consumer yes. working with someone like, so where we have the 1031 program that we're doing and somebody like a crew at yourselves to work with to do that and where we kind of make sure our boxes are checked that's where it really helps people and we bring value to the table just throwing the plug in there for anybody that's listening absolutely um, <laughs> and you know what let me let me give a real simple example too because we this is this is one that i think some of the listeners will will be able to relate to maybe not necessarily the location of the property but the type of property might might ring a bell with some folks this guy bought a, a small uh, fishing compound in alaska and he was about a hundred thousand. What's that? Sounds terrible. Doesn't it? <laughs> I, I wish I owned a fishing compound in Alaska. Then all of my trips to Alaska would be tax deductible oh. business trips. Um, but, but the property he bought was truly about a hundred thousand, about $90,000 less than what he sold. Well, that's okay. There were a handful of cabins and he needed to replace the roofs on each of the cabins. And the cabins were set up in clusters. And in each cluster, there was a gazebo that also needed a new roof. And the, the fishing compound had been built a bunch of years ago, so you could tell that there was once gravel there, but it hadn't been really maintained well. So he had the, the road regraded and he had more gravel brought in and then again graded again. And all of that, now I think he added some electricity to some of the stuff or something, but he spent about 110000 on the improvements, so what he needed plus more. And now he's got sort of a first-class fishing compound on the banks of some wonderful fishing river in Alaska. I wish I could go visit. Okay. I mean, that's – I can't tell you how much I appreciate the use cases because it really highlights how the tool can be used. Um how many can be done on one year? Let's say I'm I'm feeling real zesty on on my exchanges, and I get I, I run one exchange and I get it, and it's not quite what I wanted. And or maybe let, let's let's take it, let's run this in a different scenario. I ran out of time to identify my properties, so I just grabbed one and sat on it for a bit. And now I think that I've got a good bead on a market that I want to be in, so I run I want to run another exchange. 
how many can be done and what's the time constraints? So I'm going to answer two questions because I'm a lawyer and that's what we do. <laughs> um, actually, you know, the definition of a lawyer is somebody who you go to with one problem and you leave with two new problems. Um, so if you have a portfolio of real estate and you're relocating your portfolio or reclassifying your portfolio, you can do as many 1031 exchanges as you have properties and you can do them all in one year. But your question was a little bit different. Your question was, I sell one, I buy one. It really wasn't quite what I wanted. I bought it because I wanted to protect my 1031. Um, I think most professionals would tell you that, um, A, you should have started looking for your replacement property sooner. I was going to say, um, you just didn't have your junk together. But let's say I didn't have my junk together. <laughs> um, but then B, so now we find ourselves buying a, a property that really wasn't quite what we wanted. I think most professionals would tell you that you should really make a good faith effort to hold on to that favorite property uh, and rent it out for a reasonable period of time. Now, what's a reasonable period of time? Um, I will tell you that there is one particular published case. The facts are kind of similar, but a little bit different. This taxpayer lived in a rental property, but he also owned other rental property. And he did a 1031 exchange with rental number one and did everything right and bought rental number two. Wonderful. So he's still a tenant over there on the other property in a different property altogether. And he buys this new replacement property and nobody's coming to check it out. He's having, he can't get a tenant in there. So um, about six or seven months later, he gives his landlord notice. He moves out of the property where he's a tenant and he moves into what was his replacement property. He just created a primary residence out of his 1031 exchange. Correct. And the IRS said, uh -uh. nope, when you bought that property, it was your replacement property in the 1031 exchange. You need to rent it out. In tax court, he was able to document that he had listed it with a local real estate broker. He had marketed appropriately. It was being marketed at reasonable fair market value for that type of property in that community. But what he didn't know was that Anybody who could afford to live in that community wanted to buy. Nobody wanted to rent. So he got bad advice from a crappy real estate broker is what he got. Um, but that's nobody at National Inn. So that's Thank goodness. That's what I needed to know. Um, um, so the tax court agreed with the taxpayer. His intent was to treat it as an investment property, but the world didn't cooperate with him. And he could document that he intended to comply and he attempted to comply and he made reasonable efforts to comply, but the world didn't cooperate. So to give you a direct answer, if you bought that property, you damn well better make sure that you're making reasonable efforts to comply. <laughs> And, and if um, you don't, you should have a really good lawyer that understands how to get you out of right. it. Right. <laughs> so let, let me give you another one. This is a fun one, too. From This was very early in my career. And at the time, I didn't have the answer. So I had to ask help. So uh, I had a taxpayer who sold her relinquished property as part of her properly structured 1031 exchange. Everything was neat and tidy and kosher. Wonderful. In the community where she was buying her replacement property, 
there is a practice of um, filing in the chain of title what is called a notice of intent to close. Now, I know that that doesn't get used in all 50 states, but it does in this particular community. So she files this notice of intent to close. We intend to acquire this property on October 15th, blah, whatever. And a couple of weeks before closing, she gets a certified letter from somebody she doesn't know. Dear Mac, I understand you're going to be acquiring 123 Main Street. Uh, I hereby offer you X dollars for 123 Main Street. I'm prepared to close as soon as November 1st. And her question was, oh, my goodness. Can I do a 1031 exchange after I literally just bought this property? Well, the offer was about a 15% premium over what she was paying for the property. So somebody was willing to pay her 15% more and close less than three weeks after she acquired it. So she called me up and said, can I do this? And I said, I don't know. Let's get your attorney on the phone and our in-house attorney on the phone. And you and I will listen while they talk it out. And they both, the two attorneys both concluded, um, and I've since come to believe the same, this was an unsolicited offer. She was making zero efforts to market it. It's not like she was trying to flip it. Right. She very clearly wanted to use this as an investment property. She had talked to people about, you know, making improvements to it and painting it and changing the sink and whatever stuff. Of all that to prove it. And correct. And she had all kinds of emails. Um, and the ultimate conclusion was, yeah, buy it on October 15th, sell it again on November 1st, do a whole new 1031 exchange. Get a whole new replacement property and go from there. Go start over again. But that wasn't her plan, right? The world threw new plans at her through no efforts of her own. So if you were to go back to the scenario that I presented you, the intent was not to hold and gain income in my scenario. Correct. So that would probably leave me in a bad situation. Right. Your intent yeah. there was to use that property entirely as a placeholder until you could find what you really exactly. wanted. And there are cases where the IRS has kicked those out and the taxpayer has lost. Okay, there we go. That's also good to know. So if you are playing volleyball with that land, you're probably not going to work it out very well. Yeah, probably not. Okay. Um, so I, I had a question that I'd like, because I, I, I had some questions that I shot to you beforehand. One of those was today's environment, interest rates have gone to a level that we haven't seen in 20, 30 years. Um, for, for those of us that have been around 30 years, it's interest rates going back to normal. But for those of, for, for those younger, the younger audience members, interest rates have gone to a place that you haven't seen it before. What does that do environmentally to 1031 exchanges? Um, well, I think the smaller investor who's looking to buy their first investment property is going to have a really hard time. Entry is difficult right now. Entry is going to be really difficult because while the going rate for a mortgage, a 30-year mortgage on your primary residence might be six or six and a quarter. On an investment property, it's probably more like seven or seven and a quarter. Um, and then the property is encumbered by the loan and you need to know that you can get rent. And while the mortgage rates have gone up, the rental rates haven't necessarily gone up as far. So I think the first-time investors 
unless they have an independent source of money or can put down a substantial down payment, significant down payment, um, they're probably boxed out for the short term. The seasoned investors will always find a way to make it work. Um, whether they're taking equity out of existing properties because those rates are lower than purchase money mortgages, uh, whether they have sufficient other assets, the seasoned investors, and, um, I was on a call with somebody earlier today. She's selling a $12 million property. She's buying two $6 million properties. And this conversation has been going on for a year while she was negotiating contracts and having due diligence done. So the interest rates have gone up a lot in the last 13 months and it's not changing our plans any. Okay. And when you, when we're looking at this, and this is, this is more for my curiosity, you've got investment land, uh, let's say originally 50% down payment. I'm just faking that, but 50% down payment, the rest is on, you know, loan, whether it be buyer or whether it be owner carry or, or mortgage or however you set it up, but you have a loan on it. How does it work with the 1031 exchange if there is a loan on the property? Okay. So let's talk 1031 exchange math. Okay. There are three equations that need to balance. And I'm going to tell you straight up that if you balance the first two, the third one balances by itself. Okay. So you don't need to be a PhD from MIT or an MBA from Wharton to be able to do these mathematical equations. Number one, you want to trade equal or up in value. So for most folks, I say, look at contract price. Contract price to contract price, you want to buy something equal or higher in value to what you sold. Number two, you want to reinvest all of the equity. You want equity equal or greater than what you started with. So if I sold a property for a million dollars, well, I'll make it a smaller property if that makes some people happier. You sold a property for $200,000 and you paid off a note for $20,000. You owe $180,000 at the QI. When you go to buy your next property, you want to reinvest the whole 180 and you want to make sure that you buy something worth at least 200. If you do that, the $20,000 takes care of itself. The third equation is to replace all debt. So that $20,000, some people will say trade equal or up in debt, and that mathematical equation is false. You need to replace the debt, and you can replace the debt with cash or new debt. Where people get themselves in trouble, let's use this same $200,000 property. They sell a $200,000 property, pay off a $20,000 note, They've owned it for a while, so they've paid it down. They have $180,000 at the QI. They find a property that they want that's $250. So, so far, so good. They're trading up. And the lender says, we will finance 50% of that. $125 from the lender, $125 from you. Except they had $180. That means there's $55,000 left at the QI. So they've traded equal or up in value, 
but they still have $55,000 in cash left over at the QI. And that's where they fail. They traded up in debt. They traded equal or up in value. They traded equal or up in debt, but they messed up the first, the second equation, the equity. So those are the two questions that are most important, the value and the equity. If you can make the equity balance, the debt falls into place. I was going to say, because, and that's where things could get tricky with land loans, because a lot of land loans won't finance anything below a certain amount. Getting like a $20,000 loan or a $50,000 loan becomes very difficult with land. Well, so then what you end up doing is borrowing from a friend or family member <laughs> or, 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 or taking out an equity loan against some other asset. Yeah. But, yeah. but the other answer is if if you can't get a land loan for less than 100 then instead of selling for 200 and paying off 180 and then buying something for 250 find something at 280 so that you can borrow the 100 and that's so, 100 plus your 180 and there you're at 200 or 280 so i wanted to ask this just logistically where we're looking at interest rates have increased over the last two years it crazy increases when you take two years ago to now where if you own land prior to the last two years, let's say you owned, you know, you had a uh, $100,000 loan on land, and let's say it was 300,000 total. So you got 200 in equity and you got, you know, a hundred thousand with a note on it and you want to do a 1031. So you're going to have to get a new loan. Is that putting you in a situation right now where if you've owned prior to the interest rate hikes, that now you would be looking at substantially less buying power out of the 1031, just like a typical real estate transaction, right? Yeah, it's it's like any other transaction, absolutely. The cap rates have changed. You're not going to get the same return that you got before. Um, there, there are articles all over the papers about people who have commercial loans that are resetting every year, but you're not resetting your rents every year. And whether it's you know, so that's that's an apartment complex type discussion. But you know, if if you're buying farmland, you're you're not all of a sudden going to be able to charge thirty uh, percent more for your crops just because your mortgage costs thirty percent more. Yeah, the crops prices pretty much set themselves, right? You can't say that your corn is worth thirty percent more than my corn. Corn is corn. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so no, like I, I did, it and I wanted to jump into a bunch of scenarios. I, I appreciate that you like you fielding these like a champ. I, I, you know, I haven't been able to put you on the spot. Um, you can try. <laughs> I, I would say I'm not trying very hard. I'm just, but I wanted to run a bunch of scenarios through because there can be a misconception, right? That like if you have a loan on property, like oh, I can run a 1031 exchange on this, and you know, the, you're not thinking through the logistics of I have to get a new loan. And so you're in the same situation as anybody else buying real estate right now. Like I have a house right now I bought three years ago. I want to move to a different area, but now I have to like downgrade my house because of the interest rate factored into the loan. So you're running into the same, you're not avoiding that part of the equation with a 1031, but you yep. are deferring the, ta the taxation on the capital gains. Um, how, what are some ways where where this tactic gets sort of a, well actually no let's before i ask about if if 1031s get abused what i want to ask about is legislation because the biden administration has re recently announced that 1031s could be on the chopping block for 2024 and so the first thing i want to ask you is 
politically, because I, I don't want to get into it's not a political thing. This is a this is a thing that's being discussed. It's not it's not like opinion politics when it's actually being discussed. So what is being discussed and why, I guess, would be the question. And that might be a little speculative, but I, I want to wade into those waters a little bit. So let's go back to 2020 and then candidate Biden said that he wanted to close all abusive real estate loopholes. And he specifically looked across the room uh, at his general election adversary when he talked about real estate loopholes. Um, Section 1031 is not one of those statutes that Donald Trump uses a lot. Uh, I suspect that most of your listeners, many of your listeners, have done more 1031 exchanges than Donald Trump. Um, but his argument then was that Section 1031 unfairly benefits the super wealthy. And I can tell you that Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and those folks are not doing more 1031 exchanges than you and I are. So back then, that was part of his platform. When he first got elected, he uh, his proposed budget included limiting Section 1031, but the sentence, the instruction, the, the, the language, very vague. And the real estate industry, the 1031 exchange industry, has this wonderful coalition of 50 or 60 real estate groups. Uh, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators is the 1031 exchange uh, organization, um, the Farmers Association, the Asian American Hotel Owners Association, literally 50 or 60 industry groups have all banded together to lobby in Washington together. National Association of Realtors and, and others. Um, so when, when Congress ultimately presented to Mr. Biden his first budget, there was no mention of Section 1031. And when Congress presented to Mr. Biden his, excuse me, President Biden, his second budget, there was no mention of Section 1031 in what the president got to sign. The budget proposal currently being floated by President Biden specifically references closing the 1031 exchange loophole. So let's talk about vocabulary for a moment. A loophole is an unintended consequence. We pass a law that says X, Y, and Z, and oh my goodness, suddenly people are reaping the benefits of A, B, and D because we didn't account for that when we said X, Y, and Z. Section 1031 has been in the tax code in one way or another. It's been renumbered a couple of times, but Section 1030 and amended a bunch of times, but Section 1031 has been in the tax code since 1921. It's not a loophole. It's not an unintended consequence. It is there specifically to encourage real estate investment. And absent the um, the existence of Section 1031, farmers wouldn't be able to, re to, to move their farms from one side or the other, wouldn't be able to relocate their crops. Think about this for a second. The, the origin of Section 1031 is purely agricultural. I was going to say, it was almost exclusively for agriculture, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that was the origin. So when Congress took away non-real estate assets in December of 2017, effective January of 2018, the world said, yeah, that sucks, but we moved on. But picture this for a moment. Um, there's a meandering creek separating your farm from my farm. And the creek meanders left and right and left and right. But our property boundary is a straight line. And there are gaps and gores on opposite sides of the creek. And I have to cross the creek to get to that little piece. And you have to cross the creek to get to this little piece. And instead, we sort of swap those little parcels of, of land so that you only have to farm on the left side of the creek. And I only have to farm on the right side of the creek. And all is wonderful. And that's the origin of the statute. Now, it happens to have been expanded to include all investment real estate, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Yeah. Um, so, A, it's not a loophole. If you then read the president's budget really carefully, first he talks up and there's a whole bunch of words. And then there are grids and, and charts and and math. And when you get to the math, there's a line item that says eliminate section 1031. And there's a number as to what the president believes this would generate in, in real estate transactions. Well, the National Association of Realtors believes that roughly one third of real estate transactions would no longer exist if 1031 went away. So right off the bat, the president's proposal fails. On top of that, what the president and, and his advisors don't recognize is this. You own a farm and you want to sell it. So you hire a real estate professional. And when the farm gets sold, that real estate professional collects a commission. And the buyer had a real estate professional who shares in that commission. So there are two people who just received commissions, which by the way, are taxed as ordinary income, not capital gains. So ordinary income is higher than capital gains. The buyer also had uh, some due diligence. Maybe there was um, environmental assessments, there were some percolation tests, there was a survey, radon, all kinds of due diligence, title searches, and all of those people got paid. And again, ordinary income. And then because it was a big transaction, we each had attorneys involved who, again, got paid ordinary income. And what happens when people receive paychecks? They spend them. So if I don't sell my farm and you don't collect the commission, then you don't spend that money. And whether you didn't buy a guitar or you didn't buy a horse or you didn't buy a new four wheeler, you didn't spend the money which meant somebody else didn't get paid. And it's a trickle down. And no, it's not Reaganomics. It, it truly does. This is, But this flow. is, a, you're talking about a full sort of economy within this transaction that, that it takes up that, that is not being accounted for. So Correct. in that respect, is are we still looking at the negotiation process of, of this administration figuring out whether it is on the chopping block or is this something that is likely moving away? Because, I mean, when you think about it, this is really constricting to the agricultural economy. Being oh, able, it's, being able it's to devastating. move. Yeah, it's devastating. It's, to it's potentially devastating to the agriculture economy. Absolutely. 
do you think um, that communication has taken place? I mean, I'm sure it's taken place, but do you think it's resonated? Do you think it's still on the chopping block? I, I, I do not think it is still on the chopping block. Um, what many of us don't recognize is that there are a fair number of legislators in Washington that either come from ag families or yes. have, right? Um, or, or have very close ties to the ag community. Um, and the folks on the House Ways and Means Committee are are not exempt from that list of people. So the lobbying group that we have very active in Washington um, has been told time and time again, it is not part of the discussions. It doesn't even come up anymore. The president may ask for it, but it's not going to be what, what gets put in front of him. Gotcha. At least not today. Now, could that change? Next year, perhaps. But this is a battle for as long as I've been involved in 1031 exchange. In, in a quarter of a century, I'm going to say that this discussion has come up 15 or 16 times. Okay. So this is not a new emergency. No, it's not a new emergency. Um, you know, they did away with personal property as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. All right. Um, again, it was it was a lucrative part of my business. But in, in total transaction count, it was not a huge part of my business. I got you. I understand. So in, in that respect, to that, and that's why I wanted to ask this question first. And so this other question I had in there, it was, uh, are 1031s abused? And, and in the respect of that sort of legislative question, What's the interpretation that they do get abused? What, where are they getting that from? What is, what is driving that conversation? What is driving the legislative intent behind wanting to change 1031? It's, you know, to, <clears throat> to, to take away tax benefits from the uber wealthy. I, I, whether I'm red, blue, plaid, or paisley doesn't matter. The argument is that 1031 exchanges unfairly benefit the 1%. Okay. And if you go, there's a website called 1031 Builds America. I believe it's .org. If it's not .org, it's .com. But 1031 Builds America, all one word. And there are economic studies there. And, and I believe that uh, among the studies, there is some data that suggests that the average 1031 exchange involves a property that's valued at about a million dollars. So we're not talking about Donald Trump and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett. We're talking about people you go to church with. I was going to say a million dollars sounds like a pretty epic property. But when you're talking about a farm or something like that, it's it's really not that it's not a major outfit that costs that much. You can you can take fairly, you know, mid sized family owned properties that can still go for 20 million because it's a lot of land to to graze or whatever. Absolutely. Um, It's not. And even if it's. Even if it's not ag property, if it's multifamily property in the right community, a million dollar property could be a fourplex. That's not a big property. Million dollar property in the right community could be a duplex. Fair enough. So so this is it's the attack on it is launched towards the one percent, but it's not an instrument that is just for the one percent and not even used primarily by the one percent. Correct. It's it's used across, again, the average price. I don't remember the exact number, but it was in the neighborhood of a million dollars. And yes, 
If I had an extra million dollars in my pocket right now, it would change my life. But, um, you know, it's it's not it's not specifically aimed at the at the one percent. Look, I know Pete. I have one particular client. All of the properties she sold in all of the years that we did ten thirty one exchanges together, every single one of those properties was under one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But they all had virtually zero basis in them. So right. $150,000 was all gain. <clears throat> so in that respect, you talked in the beginning about the, the, the death clause where if the, if the 1031 exchange happens and the owner passes that the capital gains are deferred or that the, the capital gains go away. Is that seen as a loophole in estate planning? Um, so, um, part of the president's budget proposal wants to change the step up in basis for people who earn over a certain threshold. Okay. Um, he wants to change that. He wants to add a new top tax bracket for people above a certain threshold. He wants to, um, change the way capital gains are treated for people above that same threshold. So once you get to a certain income threshold, you would no longer receive capital gains rates. You'd be taxed at ordinary income rates. Oh, okay. Um, and then the other one is, again, for the same group of people, you know, we have that 3.8% Obamacare tax. Yeah. For people above that same threshold, he wants to raise that number to 5%. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, I was and I was curious about that if that was seen as, as sort of like an abuse of the the transfer of, of property. But I wanted I wanted to make sure I asked that. Um, what are some of the potential pitfalls of like we've talked a lot about the benefits of ten thirty one? What are potential pitfalls of a ten thirty one? And I think the most obvious one is if you miss a deadline, you're kind of out of it. That seems to be the biggest one in it. But are there other pitfalls in there? Missing the deadline is is probably the biggest, but it's also, if you think about it, probably the easiest to manage because you should know what those are. And I'll tell you, we will tell you what those are on the day you close on the first property. We send, we'll tell you by phone today and you'll get an email tomorrow. These are your deadlines. Um, but the other big pitfall is... Um, either identifying property that doesn't qualify or attempting to attempting to acquire property that you didn't identify. So among when you when you go to buy your replacement property and we just had this today there are restrictions on dealings with related parties. So I can sell my relinquished property to my mother. But if I want to buy my replacement property from my mother then she must also be doing a 1031 exchange. Okay. And invariably, when we have transactions like this, um, I'm seeking to buy mom's primary residence so I can rent it back to her. Well, if it's her primary residence, she can't do a 1031 exchange. And that particular um, stumbling block, pothole, whatever, um, comes up a couple times a year. Came up yesterday. Gotcha. Okay. Well, and man, 
I just checked. I just did a clock check. I hear I was the beginning talking about how I usually monitor the the deadline on on these to try to keep time at what I budgeted, and I ran way over. This is such a good conversation. I ran so far over on this. I want to apologize for the the overrun here, but also just this is a really cool conversation. This is so valuable for anybody that owns land or has investment properties. Um, and the the level of information that that you have supplied here is substantial. I just want to thank you. Um, and we can continue this another time. Let's let's I, I do. I want to continue the conversation another time, but I also want to get let you get on with your day. I know that you've got a hard stop coming up. So, um, David, I can't express enough appreciation for this conversation. This was absolutely a pleasure. Um, any last little you know bits of advice that you want to throw out there? I want to give you sort of an open platform. So, yeah, um, for anybody who's listening, if you were contemplating selling business or investment property, you owe it to yourself to consider a 1031 exchange and to speak to somebody at Land 1031 early in this discussion. Don't wait until the eve of closing to discuss this because you're going to back yourself into a corner. Give yourself plenty of time. Ask a lot of questions. Ask smart questions. Oh, and don't Google 1031 exchanges. <laughs> I can assure you if you Google 1031 exchanges, either you will get nauseous from being dizzy or you will be reading things that are inaccurate. That is a fair assumption. I have done my share of Googling on the topic and I would agree with you. So yes, give us a call. Excellent. David, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. And thanks to all. This concludes episode number 58 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing 1031 exchanges with David Gorenberg, Director of Education for Accruit. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.